Welcome to another episode of Eating the Fantastic, the last of four, following Nina Kariki Hoffman, Pat Murphy, and Issy Wasserstein, coming to you from the recent World Fantasy Convention weekend in Kansas City. I'm Scott Edelman, a writer, an editor, a podcaster, and first and always, a fan. I attended my first convention more than half a century ago when, at age 15, I went to Phil Suling's Fourth of July Comic Art Convention. Phil is no longer with us, and Manhattan's Statler Hilton Hotel is gone as well. Nothing more than a hole in the ground when I was in New York last month, but my love affair with fandom and convention culture lives on. I've been to hundreds of cons since that long-ago 4th of July weekend, always cherishing my time with my chosen family, and always wandering off for meals with the friends I'd make there as well, which taught me that chatting about the things I love over a meal is as much fun as the cons themselves. That's why I've been replicating those restaurant experiences for you as best as I can here on Eating the Fantastic since early 2016. I knew from the start I could never deliver you-could-hear-a-pin-drop audio in such a setting, but I believe the you-are-there feel you get as my guests and I break bread together leads to a conversation that finds us relaxed with tongues loosened as we bond over food as humans always have. We often forget we're even recording a podcast and chat like just a couple of friends having a meal, which means, basically, I'm offering you a seat at the table for something far more intimate than you'd get under any other circumstances. This time around, you'll be eavesdropping on my meal with not one guest, but two, the dynamic duo of Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strawn. Gary K. Wolf is a science fiction critic, editor, and biographer who's had a monthly review column in Locus since December 91. He was nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Related Work in 2006 for the book Soundings, Reviews 1992-1996, and again in 2011 for the book Bearings, Reviews 1997-2001. Over the years, he's won the Eaton Award from the Eaton Conference on Science Fiction, the Pilgrim Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Science Fiction Research Association, the Distinguished Scholarship Award from the International Association for the Fantastic and the Arts, and the British Science Fiction Association Award for Nonfiction for the previously mentioned Soundings Reviews 1992-1996. He's also edited two wonderful volumes for the Library of America, American Science Fiction, Four Classic Novels, 1953-1956, and American Science Fiction, Five Classic Novels, 1956-1958. Jonathan Strawn is a 19-time Hugo Award-nominated editor and publisher of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. He's won the Aurealis Award, the William Aithling Jr. Award for Criticism and Review, the Australian National Science Fiction Convention's Ditmar Award, and the Peter McNamara Achievement Award. As a freelance editor, he's edited or co-edited more than 60 original and reprint anthologies and 17 single-author collections, and has been a consulting editor with Tor.com Publishing and Tor.com since 2014, where he's acquired and edited two novels, 36 novellas, and a selection of short fiction. Strawn won the World Fantasy Award for Special Professional in 2010 for his work as an editor, and his anthologies have won the Locus Award for Best Anthologies four times in 2008, 2010, 2013, and 2021, and the Aurealis Award seven times. 
He has been reviews editor at Locus since 2002. And the reason I'm with both of them is, together they've been co-hosts of the Coot Street podcast since May 2010, which has had 639 episodes live the last time I looked, and has been nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast six times. I took Gary and Jonathan out for lunch at Chef J Barbecue, a relatively new Kansas City barbecue spot, which had its planned March 2020 opening impacted by something else which launched that month. And I don't think I have to tell you what that was. Unless perhaps you're just getting to this episode a decade after I uploaded it, when COVID-19 will hopefully be a distant memory. But regardless of what bumps in the road pitmaster Justin Easterwood faced at opening, I considered his barbecue the best I experienced during this trip to Kansas City, and it'll be my first stop for barbecue whenever I return. Here's where I usually fill you in on anything unusual you need to know about the audio before joining us at the table, only this time, thanks to the new Nemano sound capsule I started recording with for this Kansas City trip, I really don't have anything to say. The sound suppression of the device under stressful restaurant conditions was so good this is as listenable as it gets in such a setting, unless you're taking over a restaurant bringing in boom mics, which is not at all conducive to a casual conversation. You'll occasionally hear some chopping sounds in the background every once in a while, which I think was when sausage was being sold, but other than that, I'm very pleased. I hope you will be too. And now please join us at Chef J as Jonathan and Gary and I chow down on brisket, pulled pork, and sausage sandwiches, after which there'll always be room for banana pudding. I'm glad we were able to get away yeah. from World Fantasy uh-huh. Convention and have lunch here at Chef J's. So, Me too. So there are things I don't know about you that I want to know. I know that you okay. started your podcast together in March of 2010. But when did you each come into each other's lives in the first place? Whether was it was it on the words on the page first, or as human beings at a party? How did how did the relationship well, we met, uh, begin? It's funny because had there been a program book here, you would read this because I wrote a thing. I looked up uh, an issue of Locus in which Marianne, who was then the managing editor, had written a note, a, a news note about Jonathan Strawn from Perth is being brought in to share his expertise. And his brute strength is what it said. Ah, uh-huh, brute strength. Will brute we strength. see feats of strength today? Uh-huh. <laughs> there were feats of strength, I promise you. There were. Right. Because Charles had you slapping boxes all over. Literally, yeah, Locus, down so. in the basement. Right. And, but I don't think we met until Worldcon in D.C. Uh, really? Wait, which Worldcon um, are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, I started working for Locus in 1997. Right. And had gone back to Australia in 1998. But came back up for conventions, and so Gary and I had kind of like we're vaguely aware of each other. I wasn't mm-hmm. even editing him at that point. Yeah. But, uh, well, hold on, you said Worldcon in DC. Mm-hmm. World Fantasy in DC. Oh, World Fantasy. World in Fantasy. Okay, because so I'm DC, thinking yeah. you did not meet yeah. in 1974, and no, you did no. not meet in 2021. So World Fantasy in DC. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. No, okay. it was the 2003 World Fantasy in, in DC. All right. Well, I can, yeah, exactly, because Graham Joyce, the first meal we had together was Charles had us go out with Graham Joyce oh, yes. to talk about how much we loved his work. Uh-huh. Um, and he won that year for the Facts of Life, I believe. He did. A wonderful man. Uh, and it was an interesting thing because it was like quite awkward. Because literally, Charles wanted to talk to uh, Graham, but he, you know, so he wanted someone to come and just, you have to just say that we're not worthy and he's fantastic. He really yeah. was. But Gary and I really only started, like, really being in contact regularly uh, after uh, mid-2009, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
And why was that? Did something click in mid-2009, or did you...? What had happened... Well, by then, Jonathan was the reviews editor, and I was, I was still talk, talking to Charles Brown. And we discovered that each of us had had long, very helpful conversations with Charlie. But they were also arguments. So I would disagree with him, and every time we disagreed and got in an argument, I learned more about science fiction. After, Char and after Charles died, and I remember getting the phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning from Amelia yep. in the airport at Oakland, we started commiserating, I guess, over the phone. And each of us seemed to find that talking to each other replaced the conversations yeah. that we'd had with Charles. Huh. Was there the same amount of arguing that there was with Charles? Actually, uh, mate, I don't know for, about for you, but for me, I, I don't know because, I mean, Charles is, and my relationship, this is Charles Brown, the editor of Locus, the publisher of Locus, mm. was as much based on just being friends as it was about science fiction. We talked about mm -hmm. as much about not science fiction as we did that. With this, it was like we were getting to know each other and become friends through this conversation. So it was like science fiction fell into it. So what became the podcast, in a way, were just the sort of conversations yeah. you'd have anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, the other sort of strain here was I used to buy this, mag uh, this British music magazine called The Word. Mm -hmm. And they, their editors put together a podcast of their own, one of the very first podcasts out there back around 2004 or five, I guess. And what they would do is that every time an issue came out, they would discuss what their new issue was about. And I kept saying to Charles, we should do this for Locus. We'll put a thing mm -hmm. out there. And he was never very interested. Is and that because he was sort of old school? And yeah. Podcasts were like, what's a podcast? Or? Well, in fairness, this is a long time ago as well. What was a podcast yeah. back then? Mm -hmm. But what it meant was there was this idea in the background, a conversation we were having. And I, and I guess it must have been early 2010 where I said to Gary, you know, we should we should do this and he went yeah, yeah sure yeah and we thought we'd just try it so yeah and what to, what may have turned from just trying it to actually doing it well i think the big thing for me and i don't, I don't want to talk over gary on this mm. is was that i made a foolish uh statement the first one we recorded back in 2010 we got to the end of this audio blog that i put up and i said and we'll be back next week uh-huh and that was, it was like, oh, well, we're supposed to be back next week. We told everybody we wouldn't be. <laughs> I've forgotten that, but that sounds right. I mean, you thought it might just be a one-off, mm -hmm. or it might be a yeah, once a month. It was like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, it was never actually overtly stated, was it? No, it was never a plan. Uh, it, was, it was basically, we're having these conversations anyway. Why don't we just record them? And when I started realizing, I, I'm trying to remember some con we were at, and we were talking to... Paul Cornell, of all people. And Paul had been listening to all of our... I didn't know anybody was listening to them at all. We had no feedback. We had yeah. no mechanism for measuring things. But Paul... Uh, this may have been in Reno. I don't yeah. know. And Paul was talking to us and, and started making motions as though he were jogging. And then he said, I, I'm sorry, but uh, every time I listen to you guys, I'm out for my run. So when I hear ah. the two of you talking together, I want to start running. It's subliminal. And it, yeah, exactly. But that was the first time I thought anybody was listening to this at all. I had yeah. no sense. How far in was that? What episode? Um, no, a couple of years. A couple of years really? in. Yeah. I mean, we had some like li you know, limit, limited primitive analytics on the, on the thing. There were downloads happening. Yeah. But no real sense that it was having any impact. Yeah. And to be fair, I guess we were oblivious enough, would be the better way to put it. Huh. Yeah. Oblivious enough 
that we never really thought about it as something for someone to listen to. It was just this thing we did every mm-hmm. week. We chatted for a couple of hours. We, and it was always like very raw and unedited, as you as you know, because you know we, we would like sit down to talk, end the conversation, and it'll be online in ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very irresponsible to your, you know, your poor listeners, really. Yeah. Well, did you ask for any advice before doing it, or were you just full of... I knew almost nothing about podcasts. I remember talking to people about them. I don't think I'd been on one before then. So I had some vague notion that this is, this is old-time radio, mm-hmm. and that maybe somebody will listen to it at some point. But, if, but I think one of the things that actually made it more fun was the assumption that nobody was listening. Yeah because there wasn't anything performative about it. In other words, the first couple of years, actually ever since then, it's still been the same conversation we would have had without it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I had some experience with the internet. I worked in a web development team, and I talked to a few friends about, well, how would I actually put an audio file somewhere? Mm. And they told me, and I looked around for primitive microphones that would actually work at all on a computer Mm. at that point, and I found that. And then left it. And I don't think we ever really revisited it for quite a long time because it was just us back then on Skype. It was like, you know, mm-hmm. you had Skype, you had this little bit of add-on software called Skype Call Recorder. Mm-hmm. It would just automatically record it. That was it. And we never got smarter about it. Now, so you're using the same mics you used at the beginning? No. Or, it's, um, or is it not done on Skype anymore? It's actually, you moved to Zoom or you just well, moved to what, some other? What's happened, as you know, I mean, obviously podcasts have become much more common and mainstream. Yeah. It's a lot of supporting technology, a lot of USB microphones. So I think I bought a a Snowball Yeti microphone at one point. Mm-hmm. And then Gary bought a, a similar USB yeah, type microphone a, at home. I've got a Snowball also. And uh, so I had that. And in fact, we'd carry it around to conventions because we'd had a couple of terrible like mishaps with things. At one point, I tried to record using an iPad. Uh-huh. Went to a World, World Fantasy Con and recorded some great stuff on an iPad, including one of the great Lost podcasts mm-hmm. where Ellen Clages and Howard Waldrop talk, talked about the art of writing sh- short fiction. And it's gone. And I, the way it was set up for some reason with the file copying was it plugged it into it to sync it to get the files off and just wiped them all. And so that was a, a painful yeah. you know, lesson. But the, the actual recording technology now is like the latest version of uh, uh, the, 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 I think it's the Yeti microphones that we use, mm-hmm. and we use a, a, pro, a product called Zencaster, which is an online platform for recording mm-hmm. podcasts, and does all the mixing for you mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. And yeah, record. I, I, I had to use that during the COVID period when I could no longer take people to restaurants. And uh-huh. was deciding, should I stop? Or, you know, because obviously it would be a month or two when we couldn't go to restaurants. Right, That's exactly. What I thought back then, but I, I had to use Zencaster for that. And, had we, we each got takeout on either end, and we pretended. Okay, that would work. We yeah, pretended we were. So. That's what my Patreon people told me to do. I was just going to stop because I said that you, you need the face-to-face and yeah. and all that. So when you began, it was always remote. From yes. The beginning, except yeah. for the few live ones you've done. I think for the first four or five years, probably it was all remote. It was completely, and and we were talking. This is how long ago it was, also. When we decided at some point to have guests, actually, I remember when we had our first guest because it was Amelia Beamer, yeah. who was at Locust. Her first novel was just out, mm-hmm. and we thought, and she was a good friend, so we thought we'll just have you know, patch her in. And after that, we started thinking, well, there are lots of writers we could talk to, but especially the older writers had no notion of microphones and that sort of thing. So we were interviewing people on landlines. Yeah, uh, we we talked to Le Guin on a landline. I remember yeah. and. Uh, 
we had to talk to uh, K.J. Parker on a landline. So the sound quality was not great in some of these. But the funny thing is I just a few months ago re-listened to our Le Guin podcast and the sound quality isn't bad, actually. Yeah. Mm. Not by today's standards, of course, but if you could... My, my, my thought was, if you can understand what people are saying, we've done our job. Yeah. Now, have you had trouble convincing certain guests to appear on the show? We're talking about some of the older guests who don't yeah. know what microphones are and how to make things work. I mean, when you... When you There's been one or two times when it's, it's been felt like it's... Too, you know, you're never going to get so-and-so to no. actually set up a computer and talk to you. And so if you're lucky and they're, they're convinced about the idea of it, they'll get some young relative to come in and uh -huh. do, do the setup. Uh, but one or two over the years have probably said no. Yeah. So how do you decide who you have as a guest? Did you have any theory at the beginning when you decided it's not just going to be the two of us? I don't think there was any, any plan behind it. I think frequently there'd be somebody whose novel was coming out and we'd both seen it and uh, we thought this would be nice to talk. And of course, when somebody has a chance to promote a novel, they're much more likely to you know, be willing to do this sort of thing. Um, I, do, I do remember talking at ReaderCon one year. I think it was with ReaderCon. I think it was the only one that China Mieville was at. And he absolutely said he didn't understand. He, he, he was perfectly cheerful about talking with us or being interviewed, but he didn't want to do anything. He remember him saying, how do I know if I've cast my pod properly? Um, he was the most resistant to the idea. Although, did we have him on at some point? Who was that? China. No, China never did it. So, so he but, actually kind of said no. But the kind of rule of thumb, though, was it was the conversation you'd ha we'd have in a bar. Yeah. yeah. So it's people we already knew. We, I mean, it took, right. it was, I mean, Gary talks about talking to people when they've got new books out, but that came along much later. Yeah. All the conversations were particularly we'd go. Gary say, "Well, I was talking to my, fr my my friend down in the bar about such and such. Mm. Maybe we should talk to them." And the, I think I think if I recall correctly. A batch of the first guest podcasts actually were at conventions. Mm. And so it would be, well, you know, so-and-so's here and so-and-so's here. Oh, look, Peter Straub and Graham Joyce are both here. Let's just go up to the room and record a podcast. Yeah. And then we'll go back down to the bar and keep talking. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you got Peter Straub because he was one of the people I couldn't okay. get on the show. Two or three years before he died at a rear con, I asked him. And he uh -huh. said, even though he seemed quite cogent and coherent <laughs> to me, I don't want people to remember me now. I'm not what I was at my peak. Really? So, yeah. So he, and yet, he, I saw him for a year or two after, and he was still there, but he sort of felt that like maybe that was just an excuse for not wanting to do it. But yeah, he, he said, he, my memory is not what it was. Yeah. You might ask me things that I don't remember, and I will not appear yeah. uh -huh. at my best. So I wasn't yeah. able to, uh, to capture him. Were, yeah. were, were there any white whales that you wish you could have gotten along the way that you... Haven't been able to convince. I don't know if I don't know if we've had to try to convince people at all. There are people who, uh, like Jonathan says, there are people who sometimes need assistance. And uh, I remember Stan Robinson had his son set things <laughs> yeah, up yeah. for him. And, you know, Connie Willis always has Courtney there to yeah. uh, set things up for him. And there, as, as long as they don't have to do anything other yeah. than talk, it's generally not been a problem. I don't. I don't recall anybody just saying flat out no. No, but I mean, I think Jack Vance was a bit of a bit of a white whale. Uh, he um, would have been, and and was you know not ready, ready you know, readily you know, convinced. 
and I, at one point I'd hoped since we'd spoken, we, we had the pod, sorry, did a podcast with Ursula Le Guin, and the, basically the idea had been uh, Margaret Atwood had written a book about her theory on science fiction. And we thought, well, who could you get to interrogate Margaret Atwood's theory of science fiction? Right, exactly. And the theory was, Ursula Le Guin would be perfect. Mm-hmm. And she went sort of like, yes, I'll do it. And she did it. And I always would have liked Margaret Atwood to, to, to come on. And I realized that's like sort of like, all seems like ridiculous. Sort of. Yeah. But I just sort of thought that would have been a wonderful thing to do. And we um, probably could have because it turns out they were pals. I mean, it was, uh, there's a large argument to be made. And I think I probably did in the review that to some extent, uh, Margaret Atwood's book on science fiction was not perfect, let's say. It was based on limited reading. And Ursula had sort of gone after her with that. And they'd talked about it before. So they were on very good terms. Atwood apparently was very grateful that Ursula was filling her in on some of what she didn't know. But when you, when you get to that outside the genre, people who have no idea who we are, for example, like Margaret Atwood, what we would have had to go through two or three levels of publicists. Right. I'm sure you would have loved to have Salman Rushdie, let's say. But, yeah. Uh, you know, but I'm unlikely to. One of the things we try to avoid is working with publicists or media people. Yeah. We have, we've, we've had people on the podcast uh, who were just there because they're friends. And then later we would get, I'm thinking of one person in particular who I don't want to mention. She, her first novel was out. We had a lovely podcast with her. By the time she was writing bestsellers, we'd get an email, an automatic email back yeah. saying, talk to my publicist about that. Yeah. And I don't know if we've ever actually no. set one up through a publicist. No. Um, I mean, Neil Gaiman has been on a few times only because we deal directly with Neil and not go through the you know, sure, sure, sure. kind of thing. Um, I mean, the one podcast that I wish it had been ours, which is I think is one of the great podcasts out in the world for science fiction lovers, is there's an episode of Starship Sofa mm-hmm. where Jack Vance talks to Fred Hall. Mm. And I don't know if you've heard it, but it's fantastic. Mostly because there hits this point in this conversation where they ignore Tony, the host, and they just start arguing about old beasts in science Mm. fiction. And there's, you know, Vance, and this is like he's 95 at the time or something, still furious at Paul for changing the title of, you know, one of the stories that he wrote back in the 60s and all this kind of thing. Fantastic. Yeah, well, when you can get someone to forget that they're having a conversation for public consumption, it's just right. a back yes. and forth. Absolutely. We, when we spoke to William Gibson, we, we put out an hour-long podcast, and it was great, but we actually spoke for two and a half hours. Right. Uh, and in fact, it was so good that the, the second half, like, we kept recording it, and then we, we junked it because it, he didn't really want it to go out. Not because there was anything untoward, but mostly just because, I guess, it was less considered for public con- con- consumption, and he is used perhaps to having his words picked over by a lot of people, as you could imagine. But yeah. yeah. So when you say it goes on the air immediately, what's, when you're saying public consumption, what makes me think, I always reassure people, look, if you accidentally maligned an editor you didn't mean to malign, this is not live, you know, tell me, I'll cut that part out and try to make it seamless so you can cut that out. Or if you completely lost the track of the conversation and want to start over. Yeah. You know, I'll do that. And I think that comforts people sometimes because they might accidentally pull out an old beef they don't want to pull out and complain about their agent. And they say, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. So I always assure people up front. I don't know if you 
because you're talking to so many old friends. Maybe that's not necessary. There was one time. Uh, was do you somebody, do anything to comfort people like that? Uh, you know, once or twice people have said, "Could you cut this part out?" Yeah, and it's usually just thirty seconds. Yeah, uh, but uh, and honestly, as we sit there, I don't think we've ever spoken about it. But I do keep notes as we go you know, through the actual conversation, kind of going, "Well, what are we talking about? Were there any sound issues to to, to deal with here? Uh, do we talk over each other?" And then also, is there something where this could be an issue. And I, when we have a, someone we don't know on, we'll start off by, I'll often start off by saying, if there's something you don't want to talk about, let us know now. And in some cases, we've also said, if you want to take it away and listen to it and make sure you're happy, uh -huh. we've done that. So, yeah. And have you, had to, have you ever had to, after the fact, suggest something be removed? No. <laughs> no. Because no. I had a case where someone said something about someone. Uh-huh. Neither the speaker or the someone spoken about, I will reveal, but where I had to go to them and now, are you sure you want to have it said that way out there? Yeah. If you do, okay, but I can see how it might be misinterpreted mm -hmm. and not yeah. look good for you to have yeah. rehashed this thing, you know, but it's up to you. And they no. ended up cutting like the second half of a sentence where yeah. they really yeah. slammed no. someone. I mean, the one, the only thing that occurs to me, I don't, I don't know if this is talking out of school. For a period of time, the Creed Street podcast went out through Tor.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. And it happened, unfortunately, to coincide with the sad puppy phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And we were so used to going about things the way we normally do, just chatting, that we couldn't bring ourselves, we couldn't discipline ourselves to avoid topics that maybe they would prefer we didn't talk about for a little while mm -hmm. and so we ended up parting ways because it was just too too difficult for them to feel confident that we would actually not oh, embarrass them right yeah. and I, it's, it's one of the things that i've wondered about uh in terms of podcasts you know I mean, the, the whole environment is fraught it's so easy to say something that will get you attacked on on, on, on twitter or facebook and we haven't made a point of avoiding those things but i think the way we do that is we, we don't talk about gossip about editors or about fellow writers it's most mostly about their work or their ideas about fiction or their ideas about yeah. uh, non-fiction and so it's in that sense i guess it's a fairly intellectual podcast it's not it's not industry insider gossip even though it may sound like that to yeah. some people yeah. yeah well you can go into the territory like that if you say well how difficult was it to sell the book and then they tell the history of mishaps of Editors who right. didn't yep. want it, or the agent that fired them, or the agent they fired. And, you know, sometimes you can get into right. less than happy puppy news. But they not those sad puppies. Yeah. But I mean, less. It's not, it's not all puppy dogs and rainbows in the field for, for authors trying to sell things. So they can occasionally vent in a way yeah. that is good in a bar among friends, but not when someone's yeah. listening. Yeah. So. But yeah, you. They don't want to do anything that's going to get them in trouble with a publisher or an agent or that sort of thing. Although one of the podcasts we had with Peter Straub, I think, he had shifted to a new, new publisher and he was dealing with an editor who clearly did not know anything about his fiction. We weren't using names, but he was fairly open about the fact that he was disappointed in the editor. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not as though you're making a personal attack. He didn't name the editor. Mm -hmm. We didn't uh, go into it in any great detail. But, um, but yeah, we're not, we're, we're not censoring anybody. No. And one of the things that came up during that brief time with Tor is that we were not only have 
had to be careful about what we would say, but we had to try to, in effect, censor the guests as well, they were talking. I think we have to be really careful here, right? Tor never said for a second that we'd done anything wrong. They never gave us no, a list of true. things to avoid. But they, uh, there was just a feeling like, try to avoid the, the discussing sad puppies right now. Mm -hmm. Just because it was like volatile and unpredictable. Yeah. And, and you don't want to alienate half the audience who might buy a book. Well, uh, you, uh, but personally, just half that audience, I might have been quite comfortable alienating. Yes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Tor certainly... The main thing... Uh, here's the thing. They never had a problem with a single thing we said. They never expressly asked us to right. not say things. But they didn't have the time to go through and double-check themselves. And it was going out through their platform. Right. Mm. So, if it had been... I mean, so that was really it. It was like they just weren't really well set up for it at that point and so it was let go and we went back to the, sort of the wild woods of what we've been doing all along which was fine yeah they were effective i mean and they're you know they're a corporation they're they're vulnerable in ways that we as individuals yeah. aren't they were not terrible censors i have to say that was not what happened well no it's it's not quite but but the idea of having to be cautious is something that just never occurred to us before that period or, or yeah. since. Or yeah. since. Well, it right. probably never occurred to you until Graham Joyce spoke to you, because you were saying, I had no idea anyone was even listening, then you could do whatever you want. And, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. You know, but, but did that change? Was there a time when you changed a little bit? Even though you're saying we just always said we wanted to say there's no change, but once you realize people are listening, once people are responding to you, does that have an effect, knowing that there's an audience as opposed to thinking there's no audience? No, I don't think uh -huh. so. I mean... Uh, one of the things that Charles used to say about Locus was uh, that he didn't really concern himself with how large the circulation was. He wasn't concerned about how many people read Locus. He was concerned about who read Locus. And the audience that he wanted uh, was an audience of people who really were passionate about science fiction, who were not necessarily trend followers, and who were you know, old school people like himself. Now, Locus has changed since then as it had to. But our sense, the sense I got is when we started hearing from a lot of people that, uh, that I respected was, I thought, I don't know who's listening, I don't know who the majority of listeners are, but the ones we hear from tend to be really nice, professional people. They, they seem to enjoy it. And the, we very seldom would get feedback from people we didn't know about. Um, I guess, so. I mean, I don't remember paying a lot of attention to the little bit of feedback that we did get. Mm -hmm. What I do recall was becoming more aware of the idea that there were people listening because you would download statistics and you're seeing 500 people an episode listening, 1,000 people an episode listening, whatever mm -hmm. else. And I began thinking about the structure of conversation. You know, it may not sound helpful, but when we're recording, we, well, these days it's via, we've got video so we can see each other, but I also have a timer sitting there running constantly from the beginning and I'm looking at the kind of are we finding a thread through a conversation? Do we have a conversation that works? Are we going somewhere interesting? What's the next thing that comes after this? Where will the dreaded pause come where we both look at each other and don't have any questions? Mm -hmm. uh, because neither of us have the self-discipline to do overt preparation for an episode of the podcast. So if we were going to go and sit down and talk to somebody, it's like we leap into the unknown every time. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit less unknown when it's like someone you've known for a long right. time. But, uh, you know... I had a conversation with Simon Ings, who's a British writer and editor. And I'd read a couple of his books, uh -huh. but I didn't actually do any prep. And we talked for an hour and a half. It was a fantastic conversation. But it wasn't actually thought through. But so I thought about that, and um, I feel like after 340 podcasts or something, 
you get an idea for how a conversation evolves, and that's what's been been on my mind. Okay. Now you said 340. I thought the last time I looked, you're up to something like 636. Or, oh, I'm uh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Six. Six. Yes. Unless you're not counting your 10-minute COVID ones or whatever. Well, no, I count those. Those are counted. You yeah. are up to like 600. 637. Yeah. Well, a week or so ago, when I was looking, it was 636. So that's a lot yeah, yeah. of. Uh, I think one it, of the things that makes it easier for us, though, is that we can have a conversation, even if a guest turns out to be kind of a bummer. And I, I, I. I wonder what you would deal with something like that where you you've got a guest and you're having a nice conversation you realize this guest is just really dull and has nothing interesting to say at all well i don't know i've ever had the dull issue but there's something that i want to hear you address as well is you have people who are very effusive you can go in there toss the one question and shut oh, up yeah, for the next absolutely. hour but to say we'll move from tangential aside to tangential aside and fill the whole hour and you think oh this is a breeze i I only need one or two other questions to poke them when they shut up and take a breath. Yeah. And then there are the people who are either shy yeah. or uh, you know, not voluble, and they, yes. they, they give you two-word, three-word answers to it, and you think, oh, this is going to be rough. I have these questions, and we'll be through them in five minutes. So there needs to be a, yeah. you know, how do I draw out someone who might not be... I, th- I think when you, you t- voluble rather than boring is probably exactly the right way to yeah. put it. Yeah. With, uh, they become tough interviews, I guess, if you like, or conversations, because they are a yes, no, maybe, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is you end up having to like build a conversation between Gary and myself mm-hmm. and then bring them into it. And you're like, you know, so, you know, we've all gone and read your book and we mm-hmm. think this and this and this is interesting. So tell me now, what do you think about that? Blah, 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 blah. And then Gary might pick up a little bit of that and take it somewhere. Then I will. Then we'll go back. So that we're, but but there are times when an hour-long podcast feels like it took five minutes to record, right? And where an hour-long podcast took, felt like it took three weeks to record because it's work, and you're really going. We're going to get this there, and it's still okay. And I don't think it's particularly obvious to the listener, but for us, it is like you have to do all the heavy lifting to get this to its end. And you also have to, I know you say you do no preparation. Some of that is the fact you've come having spent the last 40 years preparing for it from right. a non-podcast life. Yes. I mean, you were both steeped in this sure. community. So there's information you know floating in your heads that did not require research and facts you can pull can, out that are... Yeah, and, and, and you're right also about guests who... Sometimes we get lazy and we know we can rely on certain people to just be... When you're talking about a, a conversation that just takes off, the one we recorded here yesterday with Kids Johnson and Jeff Ford, we didn't need to be there at all. Once oh, they were both at once. Yeah, yeah, both at once, yeah, okay. uh, on the nature well, of storytelling. And years ago, for example, when Kids was uh, at, at, at KU, we talked to her once or twice, and she, I don't think, maybe when the Riverbank came out or something, and she was such an easy guest and so articulate that I think we had her on like 10 or 12 times within the next three years because there were always people like that. For a few years, we knew we could do, we, we could get Peter on. And, and there were just people that, you know, if all else fails, call so-and-so and you'll have a good podcast. Yeah. Also, the conversation we had yesterday was very much a classic kind of guest episode that we used to do. Yeah. You know, over the last three or four years, maybe, we do a lot more conversation about so you've got a new book out, tell us about that. Yeah. We used to deliberately, it was a real conscious thing actually, I remember, mm-hmm. being uh, orthogonal to that. It would have to be like, well, we'll get you in and you in, and we'll talk about a subject where all, we all share a common you know, interest in. 
some years back we we did a Art of the Short Story podcast with with Kidge and with Michael Swanwick, right. where we broke down uh, the women men don't see, or we would talk about related points of interest, not a that standard sort of interview structure on a on a publicity tour, <clears throat> and those used to work really well. And yeah. that and you're right, that's where w- the research was being us, if you like. You know, you're, you. You've been reading science fiction. I'm sure all three of us have been reading science fiction right. since, since we were quite young. Yeah. Have worked in different capacities in that field. Have spent far too long thinking and talking about it. And so when you sit down, you don't sit there going, having to go, well, who is this person? I mean, the worst thing is when we have an interview, a, an interview type podcast, right? And like you're going, I haven't read the book. I can't. T- that, I, that I. That's where I, I. Yeah. Kind of fail. I'm going. One of it. Well, we have to have read the book, kind of thing. But. Yeah. If it's focused on a book, I mean, one of the things that we discovered early on is that a lot of interesting writers, Swanwick is a good example, Kids is an example, they, they're perfectly happy to talk about issues of writing and structure and storytelling, not necessarily about their own work. And one of the things I, I think I learned early on, although I probably learned it earlier in panel discussions at conferences, is that a good intellectual uh, thinker and writer, let's take Swanwick, for example, We've had him on several times, and most of those times it's not been because he has a new book out. It's because no matter what we're talking about, if we want to talk about Lud in the Mist, he's the person to talk to. So good writers tend to be good historians and scholars and interlocutors and so forth and so on. And, and some of the best podcasts we've had, like you said, are ones in which we're not promoting somebody's new book and in, in which we're not... I, I, I no longer feel guilty asking somebody to be on a podcast just to talk about some issue that we think they're yeah. really good at. I also think some of the things we've done have proven to be unexpectedly beneficial. You, know, you touched on the uh, 10 Minutes With podcast we did during the pandemic, mm-hmm. where we did 120 or 130 in a row. Mm. And one thing that did was it made us talk to people we hadn't been talking to, right. because the risk with 636 podcasts is you fall into a rut. Mm. You, you know, like, we'll talk, to, we'll talk to Kids Johnson eight times or something. Yeah. And that's not great for everybody, yeah. so. Yeah, well, how do you avoid that? There is a fatal flaw of certain people of our age. I'm looking around, seeing gray hair. Mm-hmm. We don't have a mirror, but I've got it too. And it could be very easy to talk to the people we've been palling around with for the last several decades in bars or the people we grew up with. And we have to make some kind of an yeah. outreach. It requires proactive work to keep up on things. I mean, you keep up with it. Gary, I'm pointing that people can't well, yeah. see that by criti- uh, reviewing books for Locus, and you, Jonathan, have to keep up with who's in the field because of editing all those books, and you want to be aware of, gee, who I, who I never heard of yeah. that came along in the last couple of years is suddenly interesting. And I yeah, mean, yeah. So it, it, it'd be much harder to do the podcast if we didn't, if we both both weren't aware that what's what new is coming out, who new authors are, and that sort of thing. And what surprises me is not. Uh, I, I think we, yeah, we avoid just talking to dinosaurs such as myself. But on the other hand, it's always pleasing to find out that somebody who I didn't know about, I remember once um, last year, a couple of years ago, Kate Hartfield sent me a copy of her novel, The Embroidered Book. And um, she, the reason she sent it was because she was a fan of the podcast. And I thought, that was cool. And we've talked to other younger writers who, who knew what the podcast was. And um, I, I think that we haven't made a conscious effort to avoid uh, 
old-fashioned memoirs of what it was like back in the 50s and 60s. I know a lot of people our age, and, uh, and, you, and you know them too, spend a lot of their time rereading Hugo winners from the 60s and this sort of thing and revisiting the stuff they loved in, in childhood. And occasionally I'll do that, but by and large, unless there's a reason to talk about that sort of thing on a podcast, this isn't this isn't the continuing history of science fiction as told by the old guys. Right, because it's something we have to break ourselves of. I just saw someone recently saying, oh, if I were going to recommend someone where they should begin with science fiction and the novels they were all recommending were from the 60s. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, well, exactly. you should start with Starship Troopers, start with Dune, start with The Stars My sure, Destination. Sure, sure. And you're like, like, no! That is not going to tell oh. someone that they should be part of this thing we have. I, I will say as well, I mean, as an uh, addendum to what Gary said, that... We were unaware of it at the, for the first few years because it was so much just us talking that there was a complete lack of thought about mm. anybody else and how people might feel about who we were talking to because we didn't feel like there was anybody else. So, so it was like, well, this is just a way for us to do what we're doing. Yeah. And then it's like a bit later you start going, well, are we talking to the same, to, just to our friends? And for a while we were honestly just talking to our friends. Uh, now there's, there's much more of a, we need to think a bit more widely what kind of you know interesting books have, have we read lately maybe those people would be you know, the writers of those would be interesting to talk to that's the challenge and that's why I say some, some of the things we've done have helped uh, but even now I am confident there are people we're overlooking who would be interested to talk to and we need to keep pushing at it yeah I mean one of the things I did with my podcast was well I have to eat anyway yeah I'm going yeah, out I'm with good. friends anyway yeah. while I just start recording that that was my idea of having a niche yeah yeah that oh there are dozens of people inter being interviewed why not right. give a different reason so that that's how I did it but and, and what I had to watch out for is well but when you're going out you're always going out with your friends right you're always going out yeah, with the same people you have to start going out with strangers yes. people you know of who you have never spoken to, never exchanged a word. You don't even know if you'll get mm -hmm. along or yes. what the conversation. Yeah, will going be like. out to lunch is that takes more guts than I think we have because we're doing it. And you're leaning into your reputation, which is that going out with you means you're going to get a good restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so being a gourmand is something that's uh, a hidden well, advantage you have. Well, how do you do? Speaking of, of reaching out to people, there were different kinds of conversations we were talking about as you began. Often. If we go out with a friend, the conversation is, well, as I was saying, you know, yeah, that's how right. you begin the conversation. You're right. continuing. It is one long, continuous conversation going on for decades. When you get that new person, right. like, like I did an episode yesterday with Izzy Wasserstein. I've never met Izzy Wasserstein. I thought, yeah, yeah. I thought the, yeah. the book was intriguing, uh, so let's yeah. have a conversation. The conversation has to begin differently because uh, the, the, there is it no... Does connection yet there's right. no trust between the people they, they you haven't figured out the rhythm of how do we speak to each other you know what are the challenges of that when you have someone or, or, or do you even think of that when you read a new book of someone you've never heard of before and have them on the oh, show only once or twice has it resulted in like i say kind of a dull conversation there are writers who simply don't know how to talk about their own work um, who are especially some younger writers who haven't been around a lot they haven't on the other hand, some of the writers that uh, Jonathan and I have both been impressed by, uh, Alex E. Harrow is one, uh, Nevo, who's got a whole bunch of interesting stuff. Um, if, and they don't expect you to have read everything. Uh, yeah. But I think once we get into a conversation, 
and we can get away from the specifics of the new novel, get away from the promotional part of it, and find out what they've been reading, what they grew up reading, what kinds of background they bring to their writing that other writers don't. Then it gets fascinating. And uh, in the sense that once you get them going in terms of uh, what are you like as a reader, where did you grow up? I mean, that's, you know, Nevo, for example, uh, has written some very uh, strong Vietnamese-based fiction. Uh, until we were had her on the podcast, I didn't know she grew up in Peoria, Illinois, and yeah. you know, uh, is on the one sense uh, writing a kind of culturally complex science fiction. On the other hand, uh, she's a Midwestern high school graduate. Uh, so, so. I'll also say, I mean, there's a few things that come into play every time we record, right? And they help support us through this awkwardness because. There are people you've never spoken to, and you're right. And there's that first moment when, you know, they pop up on a screen and you go, um, hi, uh, nice to have you here, thank you. But then I do the ridiculous introduction. Mm -hmm. He asks the first question. And we have enough experience asking us ourselves questions to usually get you through that on shaky first bit, if the person has that first bit. Quite often they don't. I mean... Gary mentions Alex Harrow. There was no awkward moment in, in talking to her where you're trying to find your feet. Right. Uh, and there's a bunch of other people who've been just like right. that. And most of them, I mean, by and large, writers make their livings with words. So uh, the, 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 I, I, there are one or two writers I know that we can talk about and not mention who are just like pulling teeth. They're very good writers. They had no apparent interest in thinking about their work. They just did it. And... That's rare. That's, that's only happened once or twice that I can think of. I think the last time we recorded a podcast with Gene Wolfe was probably in Saratoga Springs when Clute was with us. Yeah. And we didn't talk much about Gene's work at all. We talked about the writing. We talked about uh, the idea uh, of, you know, of, of what he liked to read. I remember when we talked to K.J. Parker, we spent a chunk of time talking about P.G. Woodhouse because it turns out that that's where some of his humor comes from. So I think the fun, the most enjoyable part is discovering things about writers you hadn't suspected and sometimes having them discover things about themselves they hadn't thought about. Um, I mean, if you think about it, to help them discover things, do you try to ask questions that have never been asked? Because it's very easy for people who have been frequently interviewed, if you ask a question that's been asked before, they will just go into the pre rehearsed story I've told a million times and spew it. How do you make sure you're getting something different or, or get them to say, oh yeah, I'm just telling you that story that I told to the panel? And I don't know that I think about that. What I, what I actually find sitting at my end, I don't think huh. we've ever talked about this, there are two things that I think about at my end, and that is I'm following the conversation. So I'm listening to them and going yeah. where they're going to get to the next thing that comes from the thing they're saying. Now, there is an issue sometimes when they're not thinking. And it can, I guess, sometimes lead to them giving their, their standard answers to things. But what it can also sometimes do is just take you off somewhere completely different because they answer unexpectedly and it builds. The, the risk that we have is not so much that they're predictable, but that we're predictable. Yeah. Because we've been talking so long. Yeah. Uh, and we're so active in the conversations when someone else is there that we can have our own kind of tw twitches where we go, Oh, well, we'll go down there and we'll talk about that. And you're kind of going, in fact, even once or twice we've had a conversation beforehand where we're going, we're going to talk to so-and-so and we're not going to talk about that because that's the thing that we do. Uh -huh. And we want to get them into new territory. 
So it's more about managing us than worrying about what they're going to say for me. Now, my approach has never been to... I was, I was, yesterday, for example, when Chris McKitterick took the old kids, asked would I do the interview with her. Now, she's somebody I know well, I know her work well and that sort of thing. But I almost never go into a podcast with a list of questions I want to answer because... Uh, and I've seen this happen too often. If, if the interviewer wants to get to the next question, you're cutting off something that might be really interesting. So every, just to, once I start an interview, I'll start with something. But once that initial answer comes, they're going to say something interesting that shows what they're interested in. So every question depends on what the previous answer was. In other words, and, and we tell this usually to people when we're trying to get them to come on, that don't think of this as an interview. This is a conversation we're going to have. And the conversation is going to be led by you as much as by us. And that's where you get into areas that of things that we didn't even know we were going to talk about, things we didn't know about the author we're talking to. And there are things that probably we both do that we're not aware of. Like, I don't know that Gary knows that I sit there with a, a, count, a counter running to keep track of the exact amount of time we're going to go through. Or because yeah, you're trying to hit a specific time, like about an hour, right. I guess. We hit an hour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we, there, at the beginning, there was a couple that got out to like a couple hours and you just began thinking, nobody wants to listen to us for that long. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like an hour and I suppose there was like you think back to the old radio hours and TV hours that kind of thing you're like about an hour feels like enough and also it's also depending on who you're with sometimes it's not true but sometimes that's where it begins to like hit it's like oh we're all now feeling for the next thing to talk about mm -hmm. and when you're f feeling or reaching quite often that's the time to like get it done and I also get a little bit nervous if I'm like I'm watching the audio track come in as it, as, as it records right if there's too much of him or if there's too much of me and not a lot more of them, then that makes me nervous. I'm kind of like, then push things back so we're getting more of the, the person we're speaking to. Mm -hmm. I know, it is complicated in that it's supposed to be a conversation, but we're only pretending it's a conversation. It's an interview masquerading as a conversation. A bit, yes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Except for know, the, you, all those other ones where it's just us. Then it, yeah, yeah. yeah no, but, but I'm sort of aware of having to pull back. And yet, I want to have it be a conversation yeah, yeah, with the person. Right. If the person asks me something, I have to answer it. It's not like, oh, this is about you, not about me. And, you know, I, so but I always say it's only replicating, when I explain what my show is, it's replicating the kind of conversation I have because it would not be as the other person oriented as it is. Yeah. All right. And look, there's a slightly That's twitchy true. thing about doing this, which we're, I'm very comfortable doing, but the twitchy thing is normally it would be. And so what did you do, Scott, and what did you think about that when you did your thing? Because that's also like the natural, it's the muscle we've built up over 636 yeah. conversations is to, to be focused on the other person, not on yourself. <clears throat> and also there are anecdotes I have told a million times. And sure. I want, there's a, mentioning Peter Straub, yeah. I will just mention this again because my listeners have heard this a million times. Yeah. Peter Straub once said in a Locus interview, mm. I believe, about being a pantser. Yeah. He mm. says, I, it, once I can see what's on the other side of the crevasse, I feel no need to build a bridge to it. Yeah. And I've quoted that a million times <laughs> to explain why I am the way I am when I'm talking to a writer about pantsing. And I want to wonder if my listeners, and I'm only up to episode 210, oh. uh, said, will you stop with that quote? Uh, stop mentioning <laughs> that quote. We've heard it you know, 50 times before. But you have to tell it to the other writer who's your guest who hasn't heard it before. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So there is that balance of... You know, when do I drop a piece of information that's useful to the other person knowing we're in a normal conversation, you've mentioned it. Yeah. But for this podcast, well, 
you know, do I say it again? So right. I, I have that. Sure, sure. And you're aiming for an hour, and under a normal situation in a restaurant, I start wrapping up when the check comes. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. it's if the service is fast? Mm -hmm. It's a short podcast. Short podcast, or we're in a barbecue joint. We've just lost 15 or 20 minutes of talking time. Yeah, yeah. If we went right. to a barbecue joint where you'd sit down and order, then you have that time of looking at the menu. Oh, right, exactly. You know, and talking to so, you, you know, so I have a whole different aspect of how, what I'm doing to try and, and craft things. Yeah. So how have, how have you changed over these last 13 years? I'm sure if I went back and listened to number one and listened to the last episode consciously and thoughtfully, which I did not do, uh, mm -hmm. I'd be able to say, okay, you know, Gary used to chat with him like this and now chats like this and Jonathan used to talk this way. I mean, if I took five early random episodes and five current I, ones, what would be the difference? It's, I, I hardly ever listen to the episodes at all. It's I mean, painful? Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm a, and when I do, I cringe because I, all, all I hear when I'm listening to an episode is something absolutely idiotic that I said and that Jonathan and our guest were polite enough to let me get away with it. And then we go on to something else. The one I, I say, the one I mentioned that I listened to recently was the one with Le Guin, which had to be our second, third or fourth year. It was a long time ago. It's when the Margaret Atwood book came out. And fortunately, she was somebody I knew. She was friendly. She was supportive. And she said the things that you and I could not have said about Margaret Atwood's book. But in terms of our changing, I don't know. It requires a certain level of self-awareness I don't think we've possessed. To answer yeah, the question, I'd, I'd like to think that we're more... That, we're more thoughtful, that we're more aware of how to pay attention to the other person. I'd like to think that we're better at structuring questions that will involve the other person rather than shut them out. Yeah. Um, that would be nice if that were true. I, I suppose over time when we're involving others, we are acting more as an industry podcast rather than a conversation a little bit. Yeah, so that's there's great. some of that. I mean, like, we, we talked about, again, the 10 minutes with, we're all very much books. What are you doing? That kind of thing. And that, that's a difference. How about things that would be like, uh-oh, I, I, now I know I'm not supposed to do that. Or, or I segued incorrectly. Or I... I can't speak for him. I always feel incompetent when I talk to real podcasters. Because they'll go, oh, we think this, 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 this. And we're aware of that, 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 that. And you're going, wow. You know, we, didn't, we didn't think about our responsibility to the community or our obligation to do this or what the, the, you know, what were we trying what were we trying to achieve with the podcast right. right seems like a pretty basic question what were you trying to achieve with the podcast and you go like never thought about it who did you think your listeners would be never really considered there would be any it's like they came to us without us looking for them and they stayed but it was you know there wasn't that sort of like overt sort of it was very organic at the beginning, and then was never kind of like trimmed or changed, which makes it was probably a very unsatisfactory kind of answer to it. But it was such a wide open field at the time when we when we started, yeah. And there was so little feedback that it just seemed, yeah, considered. Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that uh, we hear, but occasionally when we do get feedback, what surprises me most, and we hear it a lot, is the number of people who prefer the podcast where just the two of us are talking. Um, and it's not because they necessarily are enamored of what we're talking about, but, but we, since we, 
Jonathan is acquiring things for Tor.com. He's doing anthologies. I'm reviewing books. I'm reading books months before they come out. So we get a lot of people saying, I just like the podcast as a guide to what to look for in the next couple of months. And that's fine. That's, that's a kind of function. But it's not a purpose. In other words, it's kind of a byproduct of the fact that we're reading things in advance of, of publication. So that, that's a kind of service. I think there's a... Uh, the, the nicest comment that somebody made, which uh, I don't know who it was, but it was on Facebook, and it was five or six years ago, was the thing he liked most about the Cood Street podcast was the unforced friendship it, recommend, it, it represented. And it's a little bit... I don't know, it may sound a little bit swarmy to say that, but I think it comes and across sure. that we're, pa- we're friends. I mean, it's largely a podcast about friendship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you'd I mean, be having this conversation anyway, even if there were no microphones. It, yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. That's, it, we, we have had countless podcast conversations that were never recorded. Yeah, right. Or we've been sitting there going, well, we don't, uh, we'd, let's just uh, call up and say hi. We don't have time to record a podcast. But 10 minutes or 15 minutes later, you go, we really should just turn the microphone on and keep going because mm-hmm. it's just like, and I've literally had one or two occasions where it's like, we're going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we should do that. Introduction, let's go and just continue on. But to try and more thoughtfully articulate the answer to what was the goal of the podcast, to have conversations about science fiction with friends. Mm-hmm. It was that, it was, it was searching for community, I guess, when, if I think about it. It's like, here I am in Perth, West Australia, where there's a tiny uh, science fiction community. Here's Gary over in Chicago. And it's like, where is this community? We found some community amongst ourselves mm-hmm. and then these other people. And to some degree, the guests who come back are friends who are part of that community. Right. We like their company. And so we see them and all that. Mm-hmm. So that's it. And maybe if there's something people resonate to, it's not the unique knowledge we have about the field. It's that they kind of would like to be part of a community about science fiction too. It's kind of like we're the cheers of podcasts. Yeah. Hmm. Everybody well, knows things, your name. Well, one of the things I used to say to people when I was persuading them to get on a podcast, which almost never was a problem, was that think of it as like being at, a, being at the bar at a con and you strike up a conversation with somebody who's interesting and somebody else comes in and you're having this great conversation. And it might be a conversation about your favorite novels of the 60s or it might be a conversation if you're talking to Jeff Ford about very literary kinds of uh, metafictional things, Robert Bologna novels and that sort of thing. But it's the kind of thing that went away during COVID and I noticed it very much. Uh, I mean, our podcast went on because it, it's, it was not live like yours. Yes. But there was this sense, and I heard it from more than one one person, that when COVID was, when nobody was going anywhere, the podcast had the feeling of being in a bar with your mm-hmm. pals. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the effect I think we were going for. Well, it's like one thing that we've had a, a discussion about is the value of frequency. And the podcast has become a bit more irregular of late as we get on with other yeah. things in our lives at times. But I look back to the, the COVID podcast, and we did one every single day, 120 mm. days, 130 days, whatever it was, but every single day. And that seemed to help keep you involved and all that kind of thing. Right. It made a real difference, if, I mean, for me, and I'm sure for you. It did. T- I mean, when we say we did, the, first of all, they were supposed to be 10 minutes long, and we did them separately rather than because we could not have gotten together. Well, the time zones are too hard. And, and the time zones are too hard. If we have somebody on from the UK, it's really awkward because then I'm recording at 8 in the morning and 
the person in the UK is at two in the afternoon and it's nine at night for Jonathan. So trying to schedule worldwide uh, But one of the things about the um, COVID podcast is we said they were 10 minutes, almost none of them were oh, 10 minutes. Yeah. They were like 20 minutes, a half hour, because we were just, and I'm sure the same thing happened to you. I'd be in the discussion and at 10 minutes think it's time to cut it off. And it was clear the other person didn't want to stop. Everybody wanted to have conversations then. Because that was the thing I remember, because it was the idea I came up with, and I sold it to Gary as, we'll do this thing, but we're gonna keep it really simple. Here's mm -hmm. a standard bit of text to, to, right. to, to read at the beginning, and we're gonna ask you four questions. Everybody gets the same four questions, you know. How are you doing? Because these are strange and difficult times. What are you reading? What have you got out? That kind of thing, and what have you got coming next? And, uh, and that seemed to suddenly give you freedom to go wild. And I don't know that any of them were 10 minutes long. The conversations never were. Quite often they were 30, 40 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half uh -huh. even. And I remember sitting going, th sitting thinking, this is an hour and a half long, 10 minute podcast. <laughs> but everybody wanted it. Yeah. And I, I sometimes think about whether we could have remained sane and kept doing it because there was a certain power in having it come out all the time and people being mm. interested and engaged. Yeah. Now, think about time. There's something you mentioned just now, Gary, that I haven't even considered the time differentiation. There must uh, be episodes recorded where it's morning for Gary and yeah. night for Jonathan. Nope, and then there were other ones where it's night for Gary <laughs> and morning for Jonathan, right? Because you've got the 12 hour, what, 13 hour difference? Well, it's what is it? a 13 hour difference right, right. now. So, do you, when, are, are they morning for you and uh, morning for Gary and night for Jonathan or the other no, way eight, around? Night uh, for... We record like at eight, 8 in the evening for me is 9 the next morning for okay, him. Okay, so it's always your morning. Yeah. And always, you never yes. do it the other way around. Well, no, we have, and we've never talked about this. That's why I'm wondering whether the energy level is different when it's night or <laughs> night morning for you and night for him you know what i mean because it well, could go people, both ways yeah and, and people can hear me drinking my wine and so right. they, they they assume that i'm drinking all the time but so, it's it's always cocktail hour when right. we're recording so you settled on gary night jonathan morning you've done it the other way but it wasn't as satisfactory uh, yes, the okay. energy was wrong my recollection or? is gary like sounded more horrified at the idea of being up at eight o'clock in the morning i'm not a morning person okay and i, I at that stage when we started off, I had, I still have, but I had two, two young children at that time. And my available free time in the world was I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning and quite often they wouldn't be around and troublesome until nine o'clock in the morning. So I had this window of freedom when I would do like my editing, I'd do whatever else. Right. And so yes, it would, like, it would always be up you get in the morning, huh. do the podcast, it's all done and you can get on with the right. day. And Gary was at the other end of the day, sitting back in his recliner, having a glass yep. of red wine. The times I have actually found it off-putting. The times when being around the, the other way around. Yeah. I mean, we do it, but you sit there at like I'm sitting there at nine o'clock at night with a glass of whiskey, and he's sitting there at like eight o'clock in the morning, going like looking bleary <laughs> and like, yeah. yeah, I'm up. I can, I, I, I can it, do it this. It makes me wish I could track down specific episode and listen, saying, okay, here's a morning Gary versus a night Gary. Here's a morning Jonathan versus and yeah. see whether well, I could guess which, is which. <laughs> which was a morning voice and which was you know based on your mood That's and temperament interesting. yeah yeah probably if, I, if actually, I could track down the episodes and knew which was which it would be probably the clue will be is if you find one where it's a someone who's based in England we're talking right. about then that's what will be happening okay and like like I can feel it I feel like I'm a bit more sluggish and kind of like how are we going to get going okay yeah. here we are yeah. So you said you weren't sure who was listening. Obviously, when you won a Hugo Award, that told you someone was listening. So how did, tell me about that experience of being alerted. You were nominated. 
and then winning. It was winning to me was less of a shock than being nominated the first time. Yeah, because I just had no sense. First of all, not knowing anything of the world of podcasts, I had no idea who did nominating for this. But I think somebody pointed out that except for the sad puppies, we've been nominated every year since the category of fancast existed. And the first time that happened, my thought was, who are these people? I mean, who, 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 who votes for these things? I'd listened to some other, uh, a few other podcasts. I'd listened to Elisa's, for example, uh, just because, you know, they were covering some of the same territory we were. But I just was shocked to think that there were enough people out there. Later, I realized you don't take, it doesn't take a lot of nominations to get on the ballot for well, yeah, but things that, like that. It's true for I mean, many categories, but well, still, it's a proud thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, very proud. I mean, I mean, Gary's right in some ways that the nominations have always been consistently a delight and a thrill. Uh-huh. Uh, and not something you ever thought, I'm sure, not something you've thought about, I never thought about, we might win an award for doing this thing. Yeah. To win a Hugo was surreal. It was, it was doubly surreal because he was in Washington, D.C. holding up right. a Hugo, and I was fast asleep. <laughs> you did not stay awake. Did, did, uh, you, yeah, did, did you give Gary instructions to wake me up? Well, or I, 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 the phone call I, or? I'll be honest as well. There's this thing that happens after, an, you know, enough opportunities have happened and they, they don't eventually they start going look it is a genuine honor people say it all the time it's, it's, just, it's a delight to be nominated I don't think there's any chance we're ever going to win and after a whole bunch of times you're going we're certainly not we, we'd always say we're never going to win yeah alright and so you just stop that part becomes almost like less interesting and even now it's the having been involved and having been seen as part of things that feels like the most important part of it Rather than a specific award, though, it is a, it's a pleasure. I mean, it sits on my desk right beside, yeah. you know, when we're recording. So. so what advice would you give anyone thinking of doing this thing that we're doing? Be Do smarter than any, we were? I don't know. I mean, I have, I, I have never understood how the thing works. I know from uh, there was a Discord server for uh, Hugo nominees this year at the Chengdu conference, and a lot of these people were clearly, they're much younger people who have been Design, trying to figure out ways to win Hugos their whole lives. And I thought, they probably, and, and the one that won is one called Hugo Girl, and I'm really happy that, that, that people reached that goal. It was never our goal. I mean, like Jonathan said, we, we, ended up with a, we ended up with a Dittmar as well. And it was just absolutely delightful to have that happen. But I'm not sure that you set out with that as a goal. I think what you set out to do is something that you're passionate about and that you know you can talk about indefinitely for week after week after week. I think one of the problems, and I've listened to a few podcasts since we started doing this, not a lot, there, there can be a sense of trying too hard, of trying too hard to, to be a player in the field. And my guess is just accept, you know, whatever your role is in the field right now, go with that, but you know, the idea of becoming famous for being a podcaster is too new an idea for me to grasp. It's, it just strikes yeah. me that... Well, in our small pond, that is. I mean, we're not the, pond, you know, yeah. Mark Marone interviewing Barack Obama or something. It's not no. the general interest yeah. level of podcast. I don't think I, we... I, I think I'd say, do what you like. You know, this might sound like a silly, vague kind of thing to say, but you're going to be, if you're going to you know, sort of think about what you enjoy doing and do that because we enjoy talking to each other so we do that uh-huh. um, work out the technology be better at it than we are absolutely work out what's going to be important to you uh, I would always advise 
slightly different way of putting it, but I would, don't focus on the awards because it's like my own observation in the world is people who chase awards generally don't get them. Mm-hmm. People who chase doing the thing they're doing and being good at it uh-huh. may end up getting them, but they're never the goal. Mm-hmm. And so do something you think you can fall in love with. I would like to think that when the fiction podcasters do their thing, they love acquiring and editing fiction and putting it out in audio format. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume you love going to restaurants as well as talking to people. Yes, yeah. I love having conversations with people. And it, 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 do something that doesn't feel like work. I mean, we've done this for so long because it's never felt like a chore that you have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also probably why it's divorced from money and all those sorts of things. Right. Uh, Although there have been occasional weeks when we just didn't get around to it, but that's not... uh... So it's something you enjoy doing, and and at the beginning you said you had to keep doing it because you accidentally promised you were going to have a second episode. Yeah. So you probably did not assume you'd be here for episode 636 or 637. I didn't think we'd be here for episode 6. Yeah. So I'm still shocked at hearing that number, 13 years or... But then I'm... Yeah, it's it's the years that are more of a surprise than the the number. Yeah. So, So what's the... I should hesitate to use the word plan, but uh, <laughs> is this just indefinite as long as you have the ability to do it without interfering with well, other I, I, I mentioned things? Neve for a, a, a few minutes ago, and that's just one example of many. Here's a writer that when, a writer who was not even on the scene when we started um, and who's now very interesting. We mentioned Alex Harrow, who's uh, the same kind of thing. Uh, we're going to do a podcast soon with Alex Harrow and, and Liz Hand to talk about haunted houses. And to me, that's kind of a mix of exactly what we do. Liz has been one of our oldest fan, fan, friends and supporters on the podcast, known her for years. Alex is somebody we've only met in a few years. But when you look at the number of interesting new writers that you want to meet, one of the, reason, one of the things that I find appealing about the podcast is that you don't have to wait until you can find them at a bar or be on a program with them or schedule schedule a lunch with him. We did a podcast with Wally Talabi a couple of weeks ago. Delightful. Absolutely wonderful. Somebody who was not even in the field when we started doing the podcast. So as far as I'm concerned, there are always interesting new writers and always people that I want to meet, but I don't have to worry about going to a convention and trying to corner them at a bar. We can say, hey, why don't you talk to us for an hour? As opposed to me, who does have to worry when we're going to bump into each other, because I would have loved to have Wally on the He's virtual right. uh, now, so I couldn't have taken him out. So I've got that separate issue right. that, that is I really a, want the, uh-huh. you know, the yeah. for me, breaking the, bread with someone. For me with the podcast, I guess what I feel like is, although we never really said it, we've made this commitment to be there. You know, it's the 14th year of doing this. Like, we're there. If you turn around, there's going to be a podcast and there will mm-hmm. be us. And we try to give you a minimum of one every two weeks. Yeah. And we'll keep on doing that for as long as we possibly can. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. And the banana pudding has now been eaten, which means our time has dwindled to its I end. I didn't but, know that was the but, timer. But oh, that was the, the banana timer. pudding is up. It's oh. uh, either the check paid or the banana pudding. But there, there were two more things I wanted to get out of you before sure, we're yeah. going. One aspect of the, the special nature of your identities that you have means your relationship with guests can be a little different. Gary may have said unpleasant words about a potential guest you want or the words that were not unpleasant but <laughs> all writers when they are not absolutely beloved for the words they have written might get prickly that you know you once said uh, i went on too long or, or my words were or i was verbose in the novel you 
Jonathan, may have guests on whose work you have rejected uh, for a, a uh, yeah. And so you then have to continue having an ongoing relationship uh, with people who you might have in some small way, due to the tender sensibilities of writers, inflicted mm. some small degree of prickliness to. Have you ever had that? thought about when you're approaching a, a guest that I, I do like you uh, just because I rejected that story. Did you, did you ever find guests have that in their head I don't, at all? Th- when not you're on the podcast. No. I don't recall it's ever happened. It's happened to me a couple of times at conventions. And it's, uh, there was a ICFA convention, the International Conference on the Fantastic, years ago where John Clute and I were doing a panel discussion about Brian Aldous, who showed up in the audience with a list of every critical thing either one of us had ever written about him and was going to challenge us on every one of them. Uh, but that was, in a, that was a theatrical performative thing that Brian did and that a, a number of Brits do. He, he was just... Well, he's doing that tongue-in-cheek sort of, It was, it was a little tongue-in-cheek and a little not tongue-in-cheek. Okay. But my point is, he wouldn't have, even he wouldn't have done that on the podcast because there wasn't an audience. He was yeah. playing to an audience. Uh, uh, the closest I could come to that space is... Not so much that I've been worried that I've rejected someone's work and they're not, it's going to be fraught, shall we say, uh, because that's not, to my knowledge, ever come up. Maybe because mm-hmm. rejecting was enough to like put them out of my, 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 my thoughts. But it's more like every now and again, one of us will say, hey, I'd really like to, t- to talk to person on the podcast. And there'll be a conversation that kind of goes, oh, do we have to? <laughs> I don't know that I really want to do that. And it's, it's, it's very much a, I wouldn't go into the details, but what I'd say is what it is, I think, really, is not so much like a, that's a terrible person or we hate them. Mm. It's, is it someone we'd both be comfortable chatting with? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that does happen when you sit there kind of go like, yeah, no, uh, maybe we'll just just do something else yeah. and keep life easier. Yeah. And one of the times it'll be like, I don't want to read that book. And that's what we were going to be talking about. Right. Well, I think that comes up. Uh, I, Jonathan has probably experienced this more than Gary. Mm. The, the idea that if you have two writers uh, with stories of uh, equal quality that need a little bit of work, uh, I would prefer to have a conversation with the writer I know who will listen to what I have to say yes. uh-huh. as yeah. opposed to the writer who has a history of yeah. arguing and will not be able and will be unwilling yeah. uh, to and will not see the possible yeah. fix I am suggesting. So yeah. it, that conveys yeah. into conversations as well, but yeah. I'm sure that has come yeah. up for you. And the other thing I think, we're stuck with not making the podcast commercial, uh, not because there's anything wrong with that, we, it's just because it keeps it maybe, having not thought about it too much, in a community sort of social space, which means like I've had people say to me, well, you know, uh, you have a podcast, you have a dedicated audience of however many people per per episode. Maybe you could talk to all of the writers in your latest anthology and promote your anthology through the podcast. Mm. And it just feels to me like at odds with what it's there for. It's kind of like, it's not about, I don't feel like the Coot Street podcast is about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like it's about us and it's about science fiction the people we're talking to but it's not about me yeah, yeah. There, 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 there's a category of writers that we tend to avoid it's people that we may know but there are some writers you mentioned this earlier who simply have their spiel everything they do is self-promotional if you if you get them on a podcast they're going to say exactly the same thing they said to the 20 interviewers before right. and you and, and they just don't want to break out of that comfort zone. Mm. And some of these are very successful writers, but they tend not to make very interesting podcast yeah. guests because they're professional uh, 
self-promoters, frankly. Yes. Or they just don't want to talk about the thing. Oh, they you know, don't it's want like, to, yeah. We, we've, I can think of a writer who came on the podcast and we're going like, so, what do you think about sword and sorcery fiction and how it's evolved over time and all this kind of thing? And yeah. they're going, I just don't pay any attention yeah. to that. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, standing on the edges of a precipice or something, I'm like, crap. Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to do now? Because you realize that they just aren't going to engage. But I guess that's part of the fun of it. It is, yeah. I mean, it's... Well, thanks but, for sneaking away here. Thanks, for, thanks for the wonderful for barbecue. Some, some barbecue. Jim, I have pleasure. one final question to take uh, it all the way back to the beginning. Who came up with the name Cooch Street Podcast? Me. Who came up with the name? Mm. And the, who came up with the woohoo introduction? That me. was you. Yeah, pretty okay. much. So, well, I mean, were there the, any other names before no, no, no. that? I mean, went straight for that as the name. We know. I think it was like an or, like just what that was audio blog for an issue and that thing or two. But what had happened was, I lived on Cood Street. Mm-hmm. And where did you live, Gary? Where you live Cedar, now? Well, Cedar Street. It could be. So could it could have been. been the Cedar, yeah, welcome to been. Cedar Street Podcast. But right. what? No, but, but no. There's, there's slightly more to it. Not a lot, but a little more. Okay. Uh, I lived there. I had been doing other science fiction things. I was going to do a non-fiction magazine. I thought it would be good to do a review magazine. I did one episode, issue of it, and a friend of mine rather sarcastically said, as we were sitting there having coffee, you should call it the Coot Street Review of Science Fiction, as we sat at the Coot Street Cafe on Coot Street. Uh-huh. I went, sure. And then I did some, I, I, I thought, well, how am I going to publish this? It be as the Coot Street Press. So the Coot Street All Press right. published the Coot Street Review, and then I was like, well, I had this name. I thought, well, we can just call it the Coot Street Podcast. Because that was fine. Did we even call it that the first couple of no. episodes? That came up later. And the, the silly... Well, was it the Gary and Jonathan show? It didn't I don't have think a we title. had a title. No. And then it's because the Waldorf and Statler vibe gives you yeah, the, yeah. The, the end now. <laughs> as, as to where, you know, the Gershon Room and the Motel 6 came from, I don't really I don't remember. remember. It just seemed to be... I... The Gershwin Room, I think, was mine. I'm, I'm not sure. sure about the Motel 6. Yeah. Do they have Motel 6s in Australia? Mm-hmm. No. Well, in that case, I must have come up I with I didn't it. even realize that Motel 6s were all short. I'm going, <laughs> and, uh, in my mind, like, you know, the, the Gershwin Room, which is high above the Coot Street Motel 6, yeah. is, is like on the top floor of this, yes. this tower, right? Yeah. Yeah. But no. no so because that was the other thing. It's like it, the metaphor stuck. It was a bar and a bar conversation. And now you're a trap. Well, maybe when you get to episode 1000... You can switch up the introduction or something. <laughs> I thought you were going to say we'd go to a Motel 6. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, record one at a Motel 6. And make we it can real. do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's get back let's to get World back. Fantasy. Right. You, uh, Jonathan, you've got a panel you got on it. something. Uh, Novellas and novellas that sort of thing. And, and then, yeah. Are you working anymore, Gary, the rest of the I've got to interview him this afternoon. Yes. Oh, okay, that's right. <laughs> Five that, o'clock. Oh, it's your guest of honor. Right. Yes. So you're just going to redo the, hopefully we'll get into other this, territory. We're going to do this. In fact, <laughs> if you can give us a recording of this, this we can you, then go hit the bar. Then you can sit in the bar and play that. Absolutely, yes. That sounds like a wonderful idea. Well, let's get back there then. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that was the always entertaining team of Jonathan Strawn and Gary K. Wolf. If you want to stay on top of what those two are up to, I can think of no better way than to subscribe to the Coot Street Podcast, which you can find at jonathanstrawn.podbean.com, which I'll spell out for you. J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-T-R-A-H-A-N dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. And if you want to know more about me, you can head over to scottedelman.com. You can also check out my daily babblings either on Blue Sky at scottedelman.bsky.social or on Mastodon at wandering.shop slash at scottedelman. 
And if there's anything you want to share with me, give me a shout at scott at scottedelman.com. And all those Scott Edelmans are S-C-O-T-T-E-D-E-L-M-A-N. If my barbecue meal with a titanic team of podcasters has you hungering for more conversations with creators of the fantastic, you can head over to Apple Podcasts, search for Eating the Fantastic, and subscribe. Or you can search on the terms Podlink and Eating the Fantastic in your browser, and that'll take you to a site with more than a dozen possible places to download the show, one of which I hope will be your preferred method. Or you can use the RSS feed, which you can find at eatingthefantastic.com. That's also, you'll be able to check out a photo of them, as well as some of the food we shared. I'm afraid this time around I was so hungry I forgot to take as many photos as I usually do. Once you've done that, I hope you'll take a moment to rate or review Eating the Fantastic at Apple Podcasts and like it on Facebook, because the way the analytics for those places work, it will cause the show to be put before potential new listeners. And if you'd like to help keep new episodes of Eating the Fantastic showing up every other Friday and help keep me out of the red, I hope you'll join the supporters who cover some of the costs of the podcast, the books I buy to keep up with my guests' work, the equipment, the bandwidth, the transportation of those guests to and from cons and restaurants, and as always, the food, which loosens their tongues and lowers the fences. The easiest way to help out is to toss a couple of bucks in the tip jar at paypal.me slash eatingthefantastic. Or if you feel like buying me a cup of coffee, head over to coffee.com slash eatingthefantastic, where the coffee is ko-fi.com. But if you'd like to feel even more connected with what I'm doing here, you could chip in with a small recurring monthly donation at patreon.com slash eatingthefantastic, where there are perks involved depending on your level of support. A big thank you once again to Alex Under the Sky at Audio Jungle, composer of this episode's theme music. Coming up two weeks from today, my Indian dinner with Joe Miles, author of The Gift of Brennix Trilogy, the second volume of which, Dissonance State, was released just the week before our conversation. I don't have anything recorded past that, but luckily the convention season is about to begin, starting with Farpoint in February, followed by Awesome Con in March. I've started reaching out to potential guests for both of those events and hope to have them locked down soon. I hope you'll be joining me at the table with them, whoever they happen to be. Until then, I hope all you're eating, as well as the conversations you'll be having with friends old and new, will be fantastic. Fantastic.